Today's episode of the podcast is with Michael Goldberg. He's a music journalist and author, and he just released Wicked Game, the true story of guitarist James Calvin Wilsey, who uh, is known for his work as a base for the Avengers, an early San Francisco punk band, um, iconic and pivotal to the movement in, in general. Uh, he also played with Chris Isaac and is responsible for that hook we all know and love. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with this guy. Um, so glad he reached out and uh, we had a lot to talk about. He had a lot to say about the book, about the early scene in San Francisco, and just music in general. Really great conversation. Uh, I'll be speaking to him again soon. He's got another book coming out, but we'll talk about that one later. This one's about Wicked Game and the exciting, albeit tragic, story of James Calvin Wilsey. Also, very important to note, if you buy this directly from Hozak Books, profits are more properly distributed and 25% of them go to Waylon Wilsey, uh, Jimmy's young son. So thank you, Michael, for that. And thank you for this touching and lovely tribute to Jimmy. It's so good that this story was told, that um, that his life has been properly represented, and he'll be missed. He'll be missed by the scene. He'll be missed by anybody reading this book. So go out and get it. I've included links on all social media as well as my website um, directly to Hozak Publishing, Hozak Records. And thanks again, Michael. This was a pleasure to read. Um, and for those of you listening, enjoy the interview. Good responses so far already. Yeah. 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 No, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy. So, uh, I mean, I mean, I know it's a good book. I, you know, I, you know, I spent, um, you know, basically three and a half years, um, you know, working, working on it. And, uh, you know, I feel, I feel really good about it. I'm really proud of it, but it's just nice when, um, when other people, you know, read something you wrote and, uh, are actually emotionally moved by it. That's, um, that's powerful, you know? Yeah. I have to say this was a, an emotional roller coaster, to say the least, um, yeah. from yeah. start to finish, it was, your your amount of work that you put into this is so deep um it seems like you say only three years it sounds like a lot longer than that well it really is actually a lot yeah. longer than that in the mm. sense that um i mean one could say that i started working on this book you know in you know 1977 mm. i mean or you could even say i started working on this book uh back when i was a as a kid and I started listening to records by uh, the love and spoonful that Eric Jacobson had produced, you know, I mean, it's like, there's my knowledge of Eric Jacobson because as a kid, I was, I was a fan, you know, as a, I was a serious music person mm -hmm. starting when I was a kid. And, uh, and so when I would, you know, I, get a, I've got the first album by the love and spoonful. And before that I got singles and mm. I looked and I saw who produced it. And I was really interested in like, well, in the producers of the records, as well as the musicians and the songwriters, this, the whole thing. Mm. And then as time went on, I mean, you know, 
other groups that Eric Jacobson had produced, you know, records would come out. And then I'd look and see, oh, my God, you know, this record by the Sopwith Camel is produced by Eric Jacobson, who produced the Love and Spoonful. And his production company is Sweet Reliable Productions. So now I'm looking for other productions by Sweet Reliable Productions. And, you know, and then even though there was never a record, well, like, like Eric Jacobson produced a record called Codeine with a, a group called the Charlatans. Mm. Well, that record was never released because the record company wasn't going to release a record <laughs> called Cody <laughs> back in, you know, 1967. But, um, but I was aware of that record, you know, yeah. I was aware that, oh, oh, Eric Jacobson is working with the charlatans who were this very cool band, underground band in San Francisco. Yeah. And so on and on, you know? So, I mean, and then, you know, I didn't, I didn't know Jimmy Wilsey when he was in the Avengers, but I knew the Avengers and I mm -hmm. took photographs of the Avengers and I went to the Mabue and was, was, you know, was part of the, that's San Francisco punk scene at that time. So all these things, you know, I mean, then I, you know, uh, yeah, anyway, it's all, <laughs> it all went into the book. Oh no. Speaking of those, speaking to those connections, all the connections you made in the book, I didn't realize you sometimes you don't realize like what a web everything is and how tight knit everything seems to be. The world seems to get so much smaller every time you read a book like this. It's like, wow, everybody kind of knew each other or was within just several degrees of separation at most, you know, it's, it's, it's really great to see uh, how connected people were even in the slightest sense. Well, yeah. I mean, and even the fact of like, you know, I mean, Jimmy sees the Patti Smith group on Saturday Night Live mm. and he goes, wow, they're so great. And I could play that. I mm. mean, you know, whereas, you know, when he went and saw Jeff Beck or he went and saw John McLaughlin or, or so many others, other groups from, you know, pre-punk, mm. um, it was like, well, wow, that's great, but I can't, I could never play like Jeff Beck. I could, you know, and so it was just this sort of self-defeating thing. But once, you know, once the he saw the Patti Smith group, then it was his whole idea changed, you mm -hmm. know, and he, and so then when he got out to San Francisco, he got, you know, pretty quick. He was, you know, within about, you know, nine months, he was in an important San Francisco band. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, you know, for me, I mean, I was a fan of the Patti Smith group. I mean, I, as a, as a, because I was a, a music critic at the time, I got an advanced copy of horses. Mm. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, Oh my God. And, and this group is coming to San Francisco. So I was able to, you know, get Patti Smith on the phone and an interviewer mm. and so so when i'm learning that you know the patty smith group was so important to jimmy you know what i mean it's sort of like it's like my personal history and this book i'm writing keep sort of getting intertwined yeah. all the way all the way through mm. um yeah there's such a magic to that looking back at going back to him going uh moving to san francisco and making these connections so quickly too 
are you are you a musician um i'm not a musician mm. i play the guitar some mm. i have some guitars including one that jimmy helped me pick out i um but i'm you know i can play you know piano a little bit but i'm not a musician i mean mm -hmm. i would never think of myself as as a musician Oh, same, same. I have a, I have a guitar. I've played piano a little bit and it's, it's funny to come at, come at this as, as just purely a fan, you know, at, at just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's something I've, I've uh, tried to, I don't know, I guess come to grips with, can I play a guitar? Can I reading his history reading how he just was inspired by Patti Smith and inspired by the scene in San Francisco. I wonder like, could that ever just, you know, snap in somebody where you, um, where it hasn't for so many years, you know, like, do you think it would ever just come to you years later, you have an album in you, you know, in a couple of years? Well, I mean, well, a couple of things, um, back in, Back in the 90s, in the early 90s, um, I started taking guitar lessons mm -hmm. and I, I got pretty heavy into, into playing guitar at that point and, you know, wanted to be able to play and wanted to be able to play various songs and, you know, uh, found someone who was, who could show you how to play the specific songs you wanted to play mm -hmm. along with give you more general um, information, you mm -hmm. know, so that it wasn't like, well, I've just learned this part and I can only play this song. I mean, you could apply it to just to generally to playing, but yet he could, you could learn these specific songs and the specific, you know, you know, riffs sometimes, to, you know, that were fairly complicated. Mm -hmm. um, but what happened because of that was because up until that point, I was a music critic, ba you know, essentially, ba you know, just based on, um, on just loving the sound and the lyrics and the voice and, but not really understanding what was going on musically. Mm -hmm. And after I, after, you know, a year or two, then when I listened to a song, I could understand what was going on on a musical basis, as well as, um, you know, the other ways that I was appreciating it. And, and I felt like that was, um, that was useful. Mm -hmm. um, uh, very, very useful, you know, apart from the, just the fact of, you know, now I could play some songs if I wanted to on the guitar, but, but when I was writing about, you know, musicians and records and profiling people and, and all, um, having that knowledge uh, was useful. And I mean, mm -hmm. just in the same way that, um, you know, I felt like understanding how the music business worked and works um, and being in recording studios, a lot of recording studios and understanding how records are actually made, um, you know, all of that added to, you know, to my abilities to, um, to write about, mm -hmm. you know, musicians and music. Um, but it wasn't like I, it wasn't like any of that was done because, um, 
oh, well, I better do this. I better go hang out in some recording studios. So that'll help my writing. It mm-hmm. was like, I loved it when I could be in a recording studio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love, you know, I loved it when I was um, at the time when I was, you know, taking the guitar lessons or uh, when I was uh, talking to people who were inside the music business about how things worked and, mm. and all of that. Those were, these were all things that, that I've been obsessed with, you know, for a long, long time. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it's, it's just always felt like magic to me, you know, especially not as a, as I'm not a musician, it just always seems like magic being in a studio, being lucky enough to get invited to a studio or, just watching some friends jam or anything like that. It's just like, how, how does this come about? And then I read about Jimmy picking up his bass on the way to rehearsal. <laughs> well, the thing is, but the, I mean, the thing is, I mean, on the one hand, I mean, it, it, it's, I think it's hilarious that he was so casual that he yeah. just figured, yeah, I'll just be able to get, it's not going to be a, pro, you know, I mean, it's just, but on the other hand, I mean, Jimmy had been playing guitar, you know, since, you know, pretty early on in high school. And, mm. and he was playing guitar a lot during that period. And he went through a bunch of different guitars. I mean, he had, he had a 12 string, he started with a six string acoustic, and then he had a 12 string acoustic, and he had a, you know, Telecaster copy, and then he, he had a, a real strat and then he had mm. a he got a had a gibson you know i mean he he was like learnt, trying out a lot of different instruments he was playing a lot of songs he was jamming with a number of different different friends um and they were playing the songs and that you know they liked at the time you know which for him was you know songs by the rolling stones and mm. and uh neil young and uh and others and uh, and so by the time he got to San Francisco, he had actually been playing guitar for a long time. And if you can play guitar, you can probably play bass. I mean, it's different. And mm. a really good bass player is, um, has, has unique skills that they've learned that are very different than, um, than what a guitar player learns. But, you know, for for what the Avengers were doing at the time. And, uh, you know, Jimmy was, uh, he, his, he could apply his talents. And so even though he didn't have a bass until the day he went to the rehearsal, uh, you know, the fact was that he, he could play, he could do it. Yeah. And, and he, he understood when he listened to a song and saw, they, he saw what the chords were, you know, he understood what, you know, what, what he needed to do. And, um, you know, and the other thing was, um, which I, the most interesting thing to me was that what Greg Ingraham, who was the guitar player in the Avengers told me, he said, you know, Jimmy came up to me and he's, you know, he said, Hey, I talked to Penelope and she told me I should talk to you. I'd like to play bass in your band. And, you know, and, mm. and he said, he, he says to him, well, do you play bass? Do you have a bass? <laughs> well, no, <laughs> but, but I can do it, you know? And, 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 but the thing was that Greg said it was like, it didn't matter. 
there was something about this guy. There was something about Jimmy. He mm. said, you just wanted him. To, I just instantly thought we got to have this guy in our bands, you know? Yeah. And, and the thing was that, um, that was, you know, I mean, it's kind of interesting right now, you know, this uh, song, I mean, this show about the, this mini series about the sex pistols mm. just started airing last night. Yeah. And, um, they, according to the series anyway, Steve Jones, who was the guitar player in the Sex Pistols, mm. didn't know how to play guitar when they started the band. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't looked to see if that was really true. But in this story, he didn't know how to play the guitar. He gets given a guitar. Yeah. And so he just starts figuring out. He, he's like listening to Stooges records and just trying to figure out the chord. You know, and some of them are just like two chords. Yeah. And so he figures out the two chords. And and the thing is, that was what was so great about the scene back then mm. was that it wasn't about knowing how to play your instrument and that you had to be you had to show up and like be really good mm. to be able. It was like, do you have something to say? Yeah. You know, that was what it what it was about initially. And mm. and. You know, some people were already had more skills than other, but I mean, Jimmy was a very good guitar player at that point. Greg Ingraham had also been playing guitar for many years mm. at that point. Danny Furious had been playing drums, you know, for a long time. It wasn't like these guys picked up the instruments for the first time. They all knew how to play. Yeah, it was you know, but it was like they the songs that they were doing weren't weren't the old songs you know mm. for i mean for the most part i mean they did a few a few covers but but i mean they were they were writing new songs and those new songs were just were the of the moment how they sounded what they were about and uh, you know and then they had a really good singer songwriter or, or lyricist in penelope houston and even though she didn't have much experience at that point, um, the fact of the matter was she had a really good voice. She has a really good voice. And and she um, she was a really good lyricist right from the start. Mm. And um, so so that band, you know, was able to come together and be really good really fast. Yeah. And speaking more to that magic, it's how how lucky we are that all these people just happen to meet each other you know it could have easily gone either you know another way they would have never met and somebody would have never heard the avengers and started you know xyz band and I'm, it reminds me of did you see i can't remember the name of it but there was a documentary on all the garage bands early garage rock bands that didn't make it in the sixties. And they were just a lot of them in Texas and they were all just, you know, doing the local circuits and they never made it big, but some of them recorded. Most of them didn't. I think uh, it was expensive, you know, at the time. And some of them got recordings out and there's a bootleg tape somebody found somewhere and, you know, in an attic. And it's like, I wonder what the separation was between, you know, all these people that happened to, to meet and then all these people, had the same story, but just didn't jump off, you know, we're lucky to have the Avengers is my point. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, the thing is that um, the San Francisco scene, sadly, the San Francisco punk scene um, 
it because of the timing, and what I mean by that is the New York punk scene was really the start of, you know, mid-70s punk. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can we can talk about the Stooges and the New York Dolls as as you know the MC5 and some, you know, and then obviously the 60s garage bands and all that, but but really, you know, it's you know television and Richard Hell and Patti mm. Smith and Mink DeVille and the Ramones, um, Blondie, the original incarnation of Blondie. Mm. Um, I mean, and other bands as well, but I mean, Talking Heads, you know, those those bands that were all playing the Mabue Gardens, I mean, that was the beginning of punk rock as, as we know it. Mm. Um, and when it first started, it wasn't, you know, Oh, you've got to have a mohawk and you have to wear a black leather jacket and and you know you've got to play you know hard fast short you know that wasn't it at all mm-hmm. initially it was the, the concept was that anything goes it was like no you don't have to conform you don't have to sound like the doobie brothers you don't have to sound like you know the bgs or or yeah. you know or yes or emerson lake and palmer or, you know any of this you know no that's that's not what this is about but you know you listen to those to all of those bands um new york bands uh and they were all really distinctly different mm-hmm. um you know and then later what became what became thought of as punk became this very narrow um, kind of almost conservative thing mm-hmm. but it but that's not what it was in the beginning but anyway um the new york bands a bunch of them got signed i mean patty smith group got signed you know television got signed richard hell and the voidoids got signed blondie i mm-hmm. mean talking you know they make deville they all got signed but the uh you know they didn't catch on initially, you know, yeah, I mean, it took a little bit, right. Horses came out, but it, but it got good reviews, but it wasn't a big seller. Mm-hmm. And then very quickly, the English thing happened. And they, and basically these, these, um, when radio stations, some of them like KSAN here in the Bay area, mm-hmm. when they started playing some of the punk stuff, the listeners, didn't didn't like it huh and so and so subsequently the record companies didn't sign any of the bay area bands i mean the the avengers had had a single out or an ep out on danger house which was you know an independent label in los angeles a small independent label Mm. and you know and i mean eventually the mutants had an album but again on an independent label yeah and there was after the avengers broke up you know a guy you know got you know got jimmy and danny to like assemble from from demo recordings and live when you know live recording you know an album but that was released after the band was gone and it was again on a small indie label Mm. i mean none of the san francisco bands got um you know, when in their heyday got signed mm-hmm. to, to a major label. And most of them didn't even get signed to an indie label because the whole indie thing was just starting up yeah. at, at that time. And so it's really unfortunate that um, that happened. 
because, I mean, the Avengers were one of the best bands in the country, mm-hmm. maybe in the world at that point. Mm-hmm. And I mean, when, you know, when the Avengers went on right before the Sex Pistols at Winterland, a lot of people thought that the Avengers were way better than the Sex Pistols, mm-hmm. you know, and the Sex Pistols were the best known punk band in the world at that yeah. moment, you know, and here's this band in San Francisco that are better than them, you know, in, in a lot of people's minds. And you can, you can listen to I mean, their whole set is on YouTube right now. You can watch the Avengers set. It's mm. great. It's totally great. Um, it's but anyway. just like they're, uh, it reminded me of, who was it? James Brown opening for the Rolling Stones on the Tammy show. And back in, what was it? 64, I think. And everyone was blown away so much by James Brown that I guess by the time the stones came on, it kind of, the enthusiasm more or less fizzled. And well, the stones themselves were like, I mean, they could I mean, because James Brown was so great. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he was such a great live performer at that. And he made such great records, but I mean, yeah. he was, he was an incredible live performer at that time. And I mean, there's no way Mick Jagger could compare to it to James Brown. <laughs> if you, if you're putting them on the same stage, one after the other, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's those funny moments where certain bands open. I I've seen a couple and a couple of instances like that live where, I don't know. I don't want, I don't know if I want to name certain bands, yeah, you but you know, <laughs> I would, yeah, don't name them. Yeah, yeah. But where, you know, you, you get there and you think, wow, the opener just blew the headliner away. That was incredible. Yeah. And you know, you don't expect that. And it reminded me also of like Radiohead was uh, early nineties. I think the Pixies were opening for Radiohead at some show at some festival. And Tom York was like, why don't we just open for the Beatles? Like, <laughs> why would you do this to us? How, how could we possibly go on after them? I'm not sure what happened at that show, but <laughs> I felt that sentiment, <laughs> especially yeah. reading about the Sex Pistols show. Uh, it just sounded pure chaos. <laughs> yeah, no, it was... Um... I was in the audience at that show mm. and I was close to the stage because I was going to take photo. Fo- I did take photographs. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to be as I wanted to be right at the back, you know, at the foot of the stage. Mm. Um, and I basically was. And um, but subsequently, I mean, you know, the it was everyone was standing, everyone was packed packed in Mm. and then there was these absolute jerks from the suburbs who were wearing football you know their football gear (laughs) and and they're coming through the crowd and they're just elbowing people and just bashing into people um and just going from one side to the other Mm. and then going back and you know just you know they had just they had god knows what they had read about the punk scene but they had decided yeah. that this was going to be their opportunity to just like <laughs> you know just you know go and go at it and um it was terrible it was a terrible situation for for people who were in the audience who happened to be in the path of, of these guys yeah yeah and i wouldn't I wanted to ask you about that was that just you think that was just their their impression of what moshing was or what, no, what no, it, no, like? it was, no, it, it was just like a bunch of jerks who could care less about punk, 
who just came to this thing because of, of the spectacle of it and mm. who just, um, you know, they're just creating chaos. Yeah. Just wanted to like, um, you know, beat people up and stuff. I mean, <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, it was just a bunch of, you know, just a bunch of people who didn't, didn't know anything about anything. Um, you know, in terms of, of a scene and, mm. and the music and, and why this was important and why this was great. And um, yeah. Yeah. They're just looking yeah. at, wow. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, that still happens. You, you see that all the time, especially in LA. I see that a lot. Um, and I'm a suburbanite, but you know, I don't have football pads. I'm not causing right, chaos. Right. But yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not that far, but I guess I'm far enough removed from LA, the LA scene. I'm in Pomona um, and we have our own scene here, but going to LA, it's like, it's funny that I wonder if it started back then uh, this whole idea of like locals only because everybody, any, any outsiders are just going to cause problems because they have a history of causing problems. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It seems like we're looked at with suspicion anytime I'm looked at with, you know, suspiciously every time I go somewhere far enough away. Huh. You know? Yeah. It's not bad. It's not like I'm, you know, getting into fights or anything like that, but it's just funny to, to notice that it's like, Oh, you know that I'm not from here. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I'm not a local, I'm not a regular at this bar. Um, yeah. And this is clearly like a niche scene. So mm. yeah, it's, it's yeah. funny how that, I wonder how far back that goes. Yeah, I did like how uh, Jimmy's sentiment about as much as he got into the punk scene and as that was growing, he didn't like, he didn't seem to like the idea of the, the conformity of it and like wearing a, putting on a uniform about it. And oh, well, yeah, no, that, was, he, really that nice. was, yeah, no, that was, that was not his thing. And, and that wasn't the, I mean, the Avengers thing either. I mean, and mm -hmm. he talks about that in the book. I mean, he talks about, um, you know, they wanted to do have a guitar solo in a song they had a guitar solo in a song mm -hmm. if they wanted to do like an oddball cover they would do an oddball cover they didn't they didn't care they mm -hmm. weren't gonna they, they were not gonna do anything other than what what they wanted to do mm -hmm. and then he got you know then it, basically after um you know by the by the mid 70s um for a lot of reasons um you know the the avengers broke up but um i mean so by the by mid 1979 um you know but jimmy had gotten he'd really gotten kind of tired of the punk thing and he was um he'd gotten the uh the you know the elvis original sun records recordings were released they hadn't been available mm -hmm. and then they were released for the first time on an album and and jimmy got that and jimmy was also he had been more and more sort of getting into rockabilly and and so and actually studying rockabilly records and learning how to how to play play them and um and so um you know when when the avengers broke up i mean he wasn't sure what he was going to do next but it wasn't like oh i'm just going to get into another punk band Mm -hmm. that, that wasn't where he was at he didn't even know if he was going to be playing music for a while but then um after he he worked some he was working construction for a while mm -hmm. and he basically didn't like that and um then he decided he was going to kind of do whatever he could do in terms of music to um 
you know, to make to make a living because he liked he liked to do things related to music, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's how he ended up, um, me, you know, meeting Chris Isaac because mm. um, even though he had initially been asked if he would play bass with with Chris Isaac and he didn't want to do that he didn't want to play bass anymore <laughs> he wanted to play guitar mm-hmm. uh, and they didn't need a guitar player at that point because Chris Isaac played guitar and Chris Isaac yeah. didn't realize. He really did need a guitar player. <laughs> Chris Isaac was not a very good guitar player at that point in time. Mm. Whatever. Um, and so, but um, they got this uh, Echoplex machine, which is, um, you know, what you use if you want to have echo on your vocal or echo on your guitar. And so they need some, needed somebody to run that as well as do, you know, help with the sound. Mm. And so, um, so they asked Jimmy if he would, if he would do that. And he agreed. And so then he started before shows and after shows, he started showing uh, Chris Isaac guitar parts for the songs because they were at that point, um, Silvertone was a trio Mm -hmm. and they were doing a lot of rockabilly covers. And so Jimmy knew all the guitar parts to those songs. And so he would show Chris Isaac, you know, the lead guitar parts Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then they also were bonding because they both liked country music and, uh, you know, and that was kind of an unusual thing at that point. Um, you know, especially within the Mabuhe garden scene. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then bef- before long, Isaac got basically got tired of his rockabilly trio and broke it up. And so then him and Jimmy kept kind of working on stuff together and uh and then the two of them formed a new version of Silvertone mm-hmm. and Jimmy Jimmy found a bass player for the, for the group and um they decided to bring uh the drummer John Silvers back who had been in the trio and uh and then for the next 12 years you know that's what Jimmy was was doing and uh and you know Silvertone was very different than the Avengers. I mean, this was, but it was um, in the same way that the Avengers weren't just um, another punk band. Silvertone, even though they, you know, you know, originally Isaac's band had been a, been a, you know, a trio, a rockabilly trio, mm-hmm. the quartet was not a rockabilly quartet. I mean, they were at that point, they were drawing on a lot of different influences. Rockabilly was one, mm-hmm. country was one, 60s pop rock, you know, Beatles-esque kind of things. That was, you know, the kinks. I mean, that was all part of the mix. But they yeah. were also listening to, you know, contemporary underground music that was going on at the time. And um, and so as time went on, they really ended up with, uh, I think, a very distinctive and unique sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, which, I mean, ultimately had its, um, it culminated, I would, I would say, with Wicked Game. Um, but the albums that came before, uh, Wicked Game was on the, Chris Isaac's third album. Yeah. Um, but the albums that came before that, are really, really great albums. I mean, 
in my opinion, they're they're perfect albums. Um, all of the songs are really good. Oh, I yeah. mean, the playing is really good. Jimmy's guitar car work is um, is really distinctive, and and he um, he was responsible for really for the sound, the mood, the atmosphere mm-hmm. that um, envelops uh, those songs, and. Um, and, and it's really special. It's just really something, something special. It, it really is. Cause who else really sounds like that? You know, I, I went back and I listened to the, their debut or well, Chris Isaac's de- debut album, self-titled, I think it's, it is right. And it's no, no. It, the first one is called Silvertone. Oh, that one's Silvertone. And, and yeah, then yeah. the second one is called Chris Isaac. Yeah. Yeah. So Silvertone, I went back and listened to and, it's like no, nothing else sounds like this. I, I can't think of any two people that sound like this. And it was, I don't know, it's just uh again, magic. It's looking back, it's um you're lucky to hear that these people have met, had had met each other because it could have gone either way. And well, yeah, um, I mean, I mean, um Jimmy, I mean, I, I no, I, I guess Chris Isaac said to Jimmy at one point, he said, you know. If we had met, you know, a year or two yeah. earlier, this we never would have gotten. It wouldn't have gotten along, I mean, right? <laughs> you were a you were a punk, mm. and I was like, you know, you know, graduating from college, and mm. um, you know, you know, was in was into you know, you know, rockabilly music. Yeah, and it's just you know we wouldn't have been able to relate. We would you know. Um, but the timing, the timing was right for those two guys. Um, and creatively, they were a really good fit. And it's just unfortunate that, and this happens a lot, you know, with the business of music, mm-hmm. you know, got in the way of the creative thing eventually. Yeah. You know, I mean, but it, it took a long time for it to get to the point where um you know where they couldn't work together anymore it took it took a long you know it took 12 years basically mm-hmm. to get to that point so um luckily there was a long stretch where they were able to work together and um and a lot of mu- good music did come out of that mm-hmm. you want to say it was a good run you know it was a really good run i wanted to ask about the Mabule scene, uh, how was that, was them playing there uh, disruptive at all to that scene? You mean when, um, so when Chris the Isaac and them, uh, um, yeah, yeah. No, no, because, um, I mean, the Mabue was not, I mean, when you think of a punk scene now, when you think of it, you just think of, you know, the the whole thrash you know slam pit thing going on and all of that mm-hmm. um i mean maybe eventually i'm sure eventually there was some of that going on with babue but for a long long time that wasn't what was going on there mm-hmm. um it was you know that was something that came came along as time went time went on um and but there were a lot of different kinds of groups that played mm. at the Mabue, you know, and um, it was, I mean, like I said earlier, um, 
things were kind of wide open for a long time. Mm. It was only in the 80s that, um, you know, that punk became this narrow, narrow thing. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, at one point, you know, you know, Flipper fit into punk. Mm. But I mean, Flipper, if you listen to Flipper, they don't sound like the dead Kennedys. Yeah. You know, they don't sound like the Ramones. I mean, they're a completely, completely different thing. Mm. And, um, you know, and so, for, and, and then like the Jim Carroll band um, played the Mabuhe. And the Jim Carroll band kind of originally, they had a real Rolling Stones kind of vibe to them. Yeah. Um, and this was before they had records or anything. This is just when they first got together. I, uh-huh. I saw them, saw them at the Mabue. And, and um, I mean, so there was, there was room for a lot at the Mabue Gardens, um, you know, and the and audiences were, um, you know, they were willing to, they were accepting of a lot of different things. So, I mean, and pretty quickly, as I understand it, I did not see the Silvertone Trio at the Mabue, but um, but from the people, everyone I talked to, I mean, they played there and they immediately had a bunch of fans. Mm-hmm. And then the next time they played there, they all those people told other people. And now there were, you know, twice as many people there who were really wanted to see this band. And I mean, and Chris Isaac was and is a very charismatic figure. And if you if you're around Chris Isaac, um, I mean, it's you know, it, it it's definitely a unique thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, um he's he's just got that thing that some people have. And um, you know, some people like his singing, some people don't like his singing, some people, you know, relate to him, some people don't, but the fact is that he he has that and and so people, people were like, you know, becoming fans of Chris Isaac really fast. Um, and so, um, yeah, it wasn't, no, it, it, I mean, there were other bands maybe that um, were like, well, what the hell is this? What's this guy with a <laughs> pompadour and all this, you know, uh-huh. you know, dressing like a rockabilly, you know, dressed, look, you know, looking like Elvis was trying to be Elvis or something. What, what's he doing here? You know, yeah. were, you know, but but the the audience was dig you know audiences were dig- digging it and um yeah so it, it wasn't it wasn't a problem oh, you know, it's so great to was, hear that wasn't a problem it was a cool scene at the mabue for you know for those those first years you know 77 78 79 you know um i mean that's the time really when i when i would go there mm. um and and it was it was a cool scene um you know, and it was, I mean, the club, when it was packed, was like about maybe 400 people, but a lot of times it wasn't 400 people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and a lot of people, you know, people knew each other. Yeah. I mean, I'd show up there and, you know, Howie Klein would be there and I knew Howie Klein and, you know, Michael Snyder, who was a rock critic in the Bay Area, he'd be, he'd be there and we were friends and, you know, you know, I, I knew Dirksen, who was the uh, promoter of the Dirk Dirksen was the promoter of the of the club, and mm. um, you know, and then you know, people in the in some of the different different bands because I you know I wrote about a lot of these bands, so 
you know, Jonathan Postal might might be there or from the he was in the ready maids. He was the original bass player in the Avengers and, you know, or guys in Tuxedo Moon or uh, yeah, it was just um, it, it was you just knew people there, you know, yeah, you yeah. would just, you know, and, uh, and I, and I wasn't even, uh, I mean, there were other people who were there way more often than, than I was there who, you know, I mean, there were just lots and lots of people who were friends and who knew each other. It was a relatively small scene and, uh, you know, and you could, you could know every, pretty much everyone in it. It seemed like if you wanted to. Yeah. That's the makings of a great scene, right? Where everybody at least is on a first name basis. And then you can make deeper connections as time goes by and, and, and an open also, community. That's, that's great. And it was also like, I mean, people really, there was a real gap between the established San Francisco music scene and mm. the punk scene. The established San Francisco music scene was essentially controlled by Bill Graham. Mm. You know, he had the, the promoter, he was the rock promoter in, in San Francisco. Mm. And, I mean, he he basically had locked up all the facilities in the city. I mean, all the established facilities in the city. From yeah. there were from from there were clubs that he had control over, all the way up to like the Oakland Coliseum, you know, in the East Bay. I mm -hmm. mean, the Cow Palace. The I mean, all the different sized venues. He he had it locked up, and so if if a band was coming to town. Bill Graham was putting on that show. That's mm -hmm. just how it was. Yeah. But he didn't control the Mabue Gardens, you know, which was at one point, that was the only punk club. Mm -hmm. After a while, there were other places. There was the Deaf Club. There was, you know, a, another place in the Tenderloin. I can't remember the Sound of Music in the Tenderloin. There was, uh, you know, there were more places where bands could play. And there were unorthodox places that weren't clubs that became places that that the punk bands played but so so there was the the punks basically hated bill graham <laughs> and, and and bill graham didn't want to have anything to do with with the punk bands until yeah. until some of them started to become popular mm. you know and then you know then suddenly you know he was interested you know uh, but um <laughs> sounds familiar you know so there was that sort of thing i mean so there was a People were really united, you know, in that scene yeah. about this is our thing and we're doing, you know, we're doing this and, you know, we're playing these clubs. These are our clubs. You know, mm. this is our club, the Mabue Gardens. And, you know, and. Uh, yeah, so that was that was another thing that that kind of pulled everybody together, you know, when you're in a way, if you if a bunch of people all don't like something that can bring them together too. You know, <laughs> they don't like, they all don't like this, but they all like this, you know? Yeah. And that, and so, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's how it is out here. It's um, there's the conglomerate that owns the bigger venues and there's the smaller venues that, that get away with the, the locals and the, the, the touring bands that you're not going to see at the big venues ever, yeah. probably, yeah. you know, you might never hear of them. Maybe they have something on SoundCloud. Maybe they don't, you know, they're just right. one of those. Or uh, during the pandemic, I don't know if you heard of this. There was a band called uh, Wacko that played at Denny's. 
and they i don't know how they did it they maybe they paid off the owner or something but they they just got a ton of people into a denny's they moved some tables around and just thrashed it <laughs> and it's like where else are you going to see that i don't think i'm going to see that at, at you know at the fox or at el ray or anything i'm going to see that at denny's exclusively right, <laughs> it's right. like when enough people get together like you said and uh yeah i just want i wanted to say also just i'm a i'm a music uh photographer too and uh, i've been doing that and yeah it was great to look through your work and see all the photos that that you shared in the book um inspirational man (laughs) really really uh, a pleasure yeah i really i mean for for a period of time i would take photographs and i would write the stories i would do Mm -hmm. both um eventually that became um well when i got hired by rolling stone that i couldn't do that anymore i mean Mm -hmm. it just I just had to put everything into reporting and writing the story and, mm-hmm. and I couldn't, um, you know, also be trying to deal with, you know, the photo side, side of things, yeah. which is, which is too bad. I mean, I wish that, um, I wish I had been able to keep taking photographs along the way because there's a lot of bands that I would have liked to have photographed, but, but I just didn't do, do you know, that just didn't happen then. But yeah. luckily I photographed a lot of a lot of great musicians um, during the period when I was doing that, and and it was kind of a it was really amazing to me um, the access that back then you could get. I mean, things change, things have changed a lot. Although I'm sure it's still the same in terms of like underground bands, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, it used to be like um, you know, really, I mean really popular artists, um, you know, I could get on the phone, you know, I mean, I could get mm. James Brown on the, on the phone. I could, I could go down to LA and hang out with Smokey Robinson, you know, yeah. I mean, which I, which I did, or, I mean, you know, it was just at that point in time, which we're, we're talking about the, uh, the mid, mid to mid seventies, you know, to early eighties, um, you could have an incredible amount of access, even if you weren't necessarily writing for, you know, a huge publication. I mean, at, there was points where I was like writing for, for the Berkeley Barb, which was a small, un, relatively small underground publication, mm-hmm. but I was getting access to Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa and Tom Waits and, you know, a lot of, a lot of really important artists. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, and I was able to take portraits of them and, and, you know, not just shoot them live, but, you know, shoot them when I was doing interviews with them. And, yeah. and, uh, you know, and so subsequently I ended up with, um, with a lot of really cool photographs, um, which, I mean, I have this book at the end of the year, I have a book coming out, which is a collection of my music writing, basically 45 plus years of music writing. And, mm. And I have, I must have about 25 photos in that, in that book. And it's, you know, pick, you know, pictures of like, you know, Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart mm. and um, Towns Van Zandt and, um, oh, oh God, the Sex Pistols and Patti Smith and, uh, you know, just a lot of, you know, you know, David Byrne of Talking Heads, yeah. and, you know, a lot of uh, the Flamin' Groovies, um, you know, crime 
uh, who were, you know, one of the San Francisco punk bands, uh, you know, of course, the Avengers, um, you know, and, and a bunch, a bunch of others. And I'm just really, really glad that I took those pictures. And now it's really a cool thing to be able to actually have them, you know, they'll be in this, this book, um, Addicted to Noise, the music writings of Michael Goldberg, mm. which, will, which will be coming out in, in November. Um, November 1st, I think, right? Yeah. 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 I'll be grabbing a copy of that because I've been doing this about, uh, I've been writing for about, I don't know, six or seven years. Uh, and I got into it uh, because I was, I wanted to just cover concerts. And one day I reach out to a, a blog online. And they're like, can you write? And I said, sure, let me see what I can do. Uh, can you get me into the show with my camera? You know, am I allowed to do that? And so I started doing that and I've been cool. doing this for, you know, a number of years yeah. and I've seen your name peppered throughout every, you know, every publication, every mention of, of whoever it, whoever I've come across. And it's, you know, what, you know, what a great privilege to talk to you. Um, well, I, I, I appreciate that. that. I mean, I feel like I was, I've been really lucky in my life because, mm. you know, when I, when I got out of college, um, very briefly, you know, this was, this was back in the, in the early seventies, very briefly, I worked as a copy boy at mm -hmm. the San Francisco Chronicle or a copy person. They, at that mm -hmm. point we were copy persons. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, um, but really soon, um, you know, I became the managing editor at a local, um, monthly in San mm -hmm. Francisco called Boulevards. And from then on, I mean, for the rest of my life, I've, I've been able to like, just write about music and, you know, at one point taking photographs about music, but that's, that's what I got to do mm -hmm. and have gotten to do my whole life. And so other than that job as a copy person, that was the only, only sort of, you know, straight job I, I ever had. And yeah. um, so I just feel really lucky that I was able to just do, just spend all my time doing exactly what I wanted to do uh, for my whole life so far. And, um, but I mean, there were times like when I get assigned to write about a band that I didn't particularly like, mm -hmm. you know, but that was okay. I mean, mm -hmm. I was, cause, cause I always looked at it like, um, what's the best story I can write about mm. this band as a journalist, what's the best story? So it didn't always have to be about bands that I liked. Mm -hmm. It could be a band I didn't, I didn't like at all, but there's has to be a good story here. Yeah. yeah. Is this, what is the story? And the challenge in finding it is, is part of the fun. Right. You know, but there were times when like, like I got an assignment to write about, I guess the scorpions uh -huh. and, and I did not like the scorpions. Okay. <laughs> but I was able to like, basically write a spinal tap kind of story. <laughs> you know I mean? So you could, there were times when you could kind of, you could you do can make that. it work. You could do that, you know, and kind of like, uh, because I mean, they were doing things that were so spinal tappy. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I didn't make it up they did the stuff i'm just yeah. writing about it and it's just <laughs> insane you know uh did you ever hear that story uh by henry rollins the first time he saw that band uh venom doing 
uh, I don't know, they coined the term black metal and they're doing that early black metal sound. And he said, you know, he sees them, they all have long hair, they're doing the the whole shticky thing. And he sees this guy's hair blowing and he's like, oh, the door's, no, oh, door's not open. He sees a little fan, you know, <laughs> right up front. And he's like, is he serious? <laughs> like, is this really, <laughs> this is going down? And he's just like, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, enjoy the show. <laughs> It's so fun, right? I, I love yeah. this. I mean, that's so funny, <laughs> funny because, I mean, Black Flag in their heyday were nothing they did. What Everything they did was real. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything, you know, it was not, it was not a show. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was the real thing. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I, I'm sure he like, <laughs> he, yeah, I could see him really just thinking that was so absurd because uh that was not what he was about at all oh yeah that, he's, not that wasn't, he's not yeah and that wasn't what the other the other members of the band were about either <laughs> oh yeah just yeah. authenticity was always his thing at least you know yeah yeah <laughs> oh man well michael thank you so much for doing this i i really appreciate it um the book is out now Yep. And uh, Wicked uh, Game. It's, yeah, it's Wicked Game, the true story of guitarist James Calvin Wilsey. Mm-hmm. It's on Hozak Records and Books. I mean, Hozak Books, but the company is Hozak Records and Books. And the thing about this is if people want to get this book, the best place to get it is directly from the Hozak Records and Books website. And the mm-hmm. reason for that is this well, first of all, I'm donating. of my royalties to Jimmy Wilsey's son, Mm -hmm. Waylon, who is a teenager. um, And, you know, he doesn't have a father. He's been basically for the past, since Jimmy died, there was a, um, you know, he had a guardian Mm -hmm. who was, he was living with, um, he's still living with, with uh, that family. Um, And so, you know, I just felt like, you know, if I'm going to do this book about his dad, then I'm I'm going to donate, you know, a decent percentage of what I whatever I make. Yeah. To Waylon. And so Waylon makes the most money and I make the most money and the indie record and book company Hozak make the most money mm. when the book is bought directly from their website. And that's because as soon as you get it from somewhere else, I mean if you order it through a bookstore, the bookstore takes like half you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so then what's left, the other half out of that has to come all the expenses and then, you know, the percentage. So the, so the percentage that Waylon's getting that I'm getting is much less than, than when it, you get it directly yeah. from the Hozak site. So I hope people, if they're interested in the book, will, um, you know, that that's, they'll, they'll seek it out from there. Oh, I'll definitely be posting the link for sure. I yeah, appreciate that. That's the best that. way to do it. Yeah, of course. Of course. You put so much work into this. Uh, this is a fun read. Uh, I'll be dark, you know, of course, you know, give it yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a dark story. Um, I mean, it's a tragedy what yeah. happened, but, um, but in this book, I, I think I really convey why Jimmy was so important as a guitar player, as a musician, what he contributed, um, you know, why 
people should care about him. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, there's a lot of highlights to his life as well as, you know, really before things really sort of turned, got, got kind of darker. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, his early life was so fun you know. to read about. Like he had such yeah. an interesting time on this earth, you know? Yeah. And I mean, in this book also, it's, it's his story, but it's also, as we've kind of talked about, it's the story of the Avengers. It's the story mm. of the San Francisco punk scene. It's the story of Silvertone and of, and of Chris Isaac. Mm. Um, it's, and it's also the story, it's, it's sort of the story of the dark side of rock and roll, Yeah, you know, and, and the dark side of the music business. Um, mm. So there's a lot, and it's also a story about, um, about addiction. Yeah. And gets pretty deep into why people can become addicted to to hard drugs, mm-hmm. um, because it's as I found as I researched this book, it's a lot more complicated than I think some people might think. Um, yeah, it's a story people don't hear a lot. People hear yeah. just the end of it. You know, the I don't know all the dark, twisted things that that people with addictions end up doing and you know you hear the horror stories and you don't hear all the the backstory of that you know how did somebody get into this and how yeah what happened they childhood under the spell yeah yeah i mean i mean there were things that happened during jimmy's childhood mm-hmm. that were factors in you know him seeking um sort of relief through um through you know certain drugs yeah yeah you know the story that has to be told that has to be more openly discussed it's and and i think it it's being discussed more nowadays mental health and addiction and being more open to to safer drug options (laughs) yeah i mean i I, you know i mean i i also see this book as as a cautionary tale and i hope that musicians Mm -hmm. will read this book and that you know they will they will see why there's certain roads you really don't want to go down. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, that's what I, I hope that would be the case for some, some people who read this book. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. To see how easy that road is taken, how easily that road is taken. Um, yeah. It's cautionary tale for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Uh, the Avengers uh, died for your sins is one of the first albums I ever bought. I was 13 mm. years old and I, cool. I, yeah, I had, I wow. saw it, I had to have it. And, uh, so this one really hit home. This, I, yeah, I, this was an absolute pleasure. Great. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that was really, really nice to be able to talk to you. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Talk again soon, hopefully. Huh? That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to do something when when the the next book comes out, um, hopefully I'll have I'll have um, you know once I have um, I get word from the company mm-hmm. that they've got advance. Uh, you know, advances, mm-hmm. then um, I can let you know. And, oh, please uh, do. Yeah. This you know, if, advance was a big help. <laughs> yeah. Because um, they'll, I mean, Hozak is a little different than, you know, because Hozak is a small independent company, mm-hmm. basically the way he, he does things a lot differently than, um, than a lot of book companies. So really he let people pre-order the book when the book showed up, you know, mm when he got the shipments of the books, it wasn't like he had books or advanced printed advanced copies of the book months before the book was actually published. Right. He basically had the book, you know, 
as soon as he got it in, he started sending it out to the people who ordered the book, right? You yeah. know what I mean? It's like instantaneous. So whereas with the other, this other company, Backbeat Books, mm. which is a much larger company, it's part of a much larger company. I mean, they'll have proofs of, of the, you know, the Addicted to Noise book, you know, probably months in advance of the yeah. book actually being published. And so it'll be a whole different thing. You know, I mean, huh. people, you know, who are going to cover the book in some way will be able to get, you know, a physical version of the book if they want that in advance. Very cool. Very you know? cool. So, um, yeah. well, Hey, this, yeah. uh, this, uh, digital book was amazing. And it's like, Oh, finally I get to use my, my iPad for good. <laughs> yeah. You know, it looks really good on, it looks uh, on, on an iPad, you know, it looks great. In fact, it looks better on an iPad than the actual book because of the <laughs> fact that the photographs, you really get the blacks, you know, in yeah. the black and black white photographs, I mean, mm -hmm. they they really look great. You know, when you print, I mean, the book is printed on good paper, mm -hmm. you know, but it's not printed on glossy, you know, coffee table photo book paper. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. And so, so the photos all look really good in the print printed version of the book, but they look in. I think they look incredible when you're looking at them on an iPad or a computer. Oh, yeah. Everything um, looks so deep, you know, yeah, that's the other thing. Really I mean, we didn't through. talk about, about this, but I mean, this is the wonderful thing about Hozak. Uh -huh. Todd, who is the publisher at, um, you know, Todd Novak is the publisher uh -huh. and he, first of all, he's a huge fan of music. He, the records he releases, the books he publishes are about people that he's interested in mm -hmm. that he cares about. He's not just like, you know, just publishing a book randomly. I mean, this is it's not business as it, usual. You know? Yeah. And, and he loves to have tons of images mm -hmm. in the books. So, I mean, any other publisher, there's no way I would have had over 150 images in my book. No <laughs> way. But, but Todd, that's what he wanted, you know? So I was able to like, it was so great. And I knew yeah. that in advance. So I was able to assemble, you know, all the, all the images that you saw in the book. Um, yeah, that's what I want as a, as a reader, as a photographer, I, I want those images. I was so glad that that well, came through. Well, and it, you know, it, I mean, it so adds to when you're reading the text because you're actually able to see a lot of these things as mm -hmm. opposed to just read about them, you yeah. know, and, um, and to see Jimmy through all his different phases from what he, what he looks like when he's a little kid to, to, you know, and, you know, and there's like so many pictures of the Avengers in this book and great pictures. I mean, I was able to get some of the just best photographers there are, mm -hmm. you know, were willing to contribute photos to the book. And yeah. um, so anyway, yeah. So all I'm saying is, I mean, I'm just saying Hozak is a really cool and unique book company. And I'm really so glad that he wanted to do this book. Because, yeah, shout out to um, Hozak. You know, it's, it's cool. And he's done a lot of good books. I mean, he's, and he's got more coming, coming up. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a, he's got a great, great thing going. Yeah. Oh, awesome. I'm glad you two linked up and I'll say it again and again, we are lucky that, you know, talented people connect with each other uh, at the right time and produce beautiful work. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's funny. I mean, because, um, 
Um, typically, a book company, your contract with a book company is like 15 or more pages of microscopic text. That's uh. the contract that you have to sign. And it's, you know, it goes on yeah. and on. With, with Hozak, the contract is less than one page. <laughs> and it's not microscopic text. It's wow. like normal size text that you can actually read. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it was, wow. it was so nice yeah. to like, just have this like really simple, straightforward agreement, you know? Yeah. And uh, what a relief, what a breath of fresh air, right? As you published yeah. books before, right? And I'm sure it's like yeah, you said, I mean, that's not how it goes. And, and so that's the thing. I mean, it's like, it is possible to do things differently. Everything doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be this like certain way that things yeah. have just become done in a particular industry. Mm. It's like someone can come along and say, you know what, let's do it differently. Mm -hmm. You know, and oh, that's yeah. kind of what, that, you know, that's what um, in the early days of, of, you know, the punk scene, that's what was going on kind of a lot. And, and I feel like, um, you know, Hozak has, is carried on that aspect, that tradition of things. Mm. Um, did you learn that later or did you, uh, is that what attracted you to them in the first place? Um, what attracted me to them was, I mean, I, the first thing that I really knew about them was I saw um, a post on Facebook about a book called, um, what's, what's his book called? Um, where are you? Give me, it's called um, When Can I Fly? Mm -hmm. It's by Michael Belfer, who sadly died um, a few months back. Michael Belfer was the guitar player in the in Sleepers, which mm -hmm. was a San Francisco uh, punk band. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then also he was in Tuxedo Moon. And uh, so it was his memoir. And I was reading about it. Um, you know, I, I saw this thing in Facebook and uh, and it was like, well, this sounds really, really interesting. You know, and it was on this company called Hozak Books. And so I ordered a copy of it and got it. And I just thought it was great. And it had all these photos in it, which was really cool, really refreshing. Yeah. Wow. I mean, look at this. I've never seen a book like this before. <laughs> and um, so anyway, I ended up, um, I got a hold of Michael Belfer. Mm -hmm. And um, I wrote, actually, I can't remember how, anyway. And so, um, so I talked to him on the phone about Hozak Books. And I said, tell me about this book company, you know, and, and he told me all about the company and he really liked it and he really liked working with them. And he, he just had a, just a really positive experience. And so awesome. then I looked into, you know, some of their other books and, um, and then a, uh, uh you know, friend of mine was also involved in another book that they were, they had just published mm. and um, kind of a cool, cool book. It's, it's called the white label promo preservation society. And it's basically a hundred albums that most people have never heard of that are really Ooh. good. And, and, a, and a whole bunch of, of respected um, music critics write, you know, one page reviews of yeah. each album. And uh, yeah, it's a really, oh, really, really cool book. And um, so anyway, I talked to um, to one of the guys who put that together mm. um, and he also just, we've had, had, you know, they'd had just a great time working with, with Hozak. And so, you know, so then, um, so then I talked to um, Todd Novak, the publisher, 
and um, and he was he was in, totally into the into this book, and uh, so then we just took it from there. Mm. Uh, Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> three years in the making, right? So, three and a half. <laughs> three and a half years in the making. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I was gonna say. I yeah. mean, the thing was, you know, I'd interviewed Jimmy back, you know, back in like. 87 and 91 mm. I, I had like over over four hours of interviews with jimmy wilsey mm. and then and then a, the writer who did the last interview with jimmy that he did six months before he died he shared his interview with me which has not been published and so i was mm. able to draw on seven hours of interview with jimmy so there's lots of quotes you know from jimmy obviously in the book and then i had like 10 hours of interviews i'd had done over the years with chris isaac so mm. i so and then i had interviews i had done with eric jacobson back back in the day and and the uh, mark Plummer who co-managed um the band in the early days yeah and so i so i had all that material and then of course i did all these new interviews i mean you know i mean for three years i was doing interviews constantly and, you track people down too yeah yeah and then some people i was well, talk people like eric jacobson i talked to many times over mm -hmm. the three three years um and there were a, a number of people a bunch of people like that where i would keep talking to them or i would you know i had another question i'd send it by email or i'd send it by text and mm -hmm. you know and so um it's uh yeah i mean it was it was very intense all the research <laughs> you know very 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 intense um that was in the back of my mind the the entire time reading this i'm like man this guy did his did some work yeah <laughs> especially on facebook I, I i guess that was hopefully easier to track people down on on social media well well uh, that helps a lot you know mm. that helped that ha really helped a lot i mean in terms of um because you know i spent a lot of time early on going through Jimmy had two Facebook pages. He also had posts that he did on, on other, other place in other places. Mm -hmm. um, and so I sought out, I, I basically went through his entire Facebook, you know, everything as far back as you could go on his, his Facebook pages. And, and then I went to these other sites and I, you know, read every post that he had done. Mm -hmm. And so not only was I able to find really interesting material from Jimmy himself, Mm -hmm. to use in the book um but i was able to find you know when he died you know one of his um his junior high school friends did a post mm -hmm. and so i was able to like reach out to him and he was up for talking and so then we were able to do a bunch of interviews about yeah. what jimmy was like back in excuse me when when jimmy was um you know in junior high and high school yeah and you know, and then that would lead to, you know, to other people. And um, yeah, so it was, I mean, social media, th that is a good thing about social media. There's bad things about it, obviously, but um, oh yeah, that was one really good thing was um, it, it was a lot easier, I think, to track down some of the people um, than it would have been uh, pre-social media. Although, you know, you could still do it. I mean, mm. it would still be possible. It would just, you know, used to, it would just be, you know, you just used to do it in different ways. Yeah. It's funny because I'm the generation of social media 
Facebook, I mean, MySpace came out when I was in high school. So as far as I know, this is how it's been done. Looking back, <laughs> just sounds like what a pain <laughs> if you had to do the same thing just on foot. Well, a lot of That's times brutal. the thing the thing was that um, often when you were writing a story, I mean, like, like when I was doing a cover story on Stevie Wonder for Rolling Stone, mm. well, I could get access you know, it's like, well, I want to talk to Stevie's mother. Yeah. Well, so his people could help make that happen, you know, or yeah. I could go to Motown and say, I'm doing this, you know, cover story. And would Barry Gordy be willing to talk to me specifically about Stevie? Yeah. And, and they would arrange for Barry Gordy to get on the phone, you know, so you could, you could do it, you know, mm -hmm. and then you could, you know, you talk, you know, you could, you know, you could get the manager, you could get to the producer, you could get, you know, you know, and you could get to sometimes you could get to the friends of of band members. And uh, so so you could do it. You just had to you just had to do it in a different. It was just different. Yeah. Than, yeah. Um, then uh, then how it works with social media. Then as easily um, as search a name and they're probably there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and then it's a question of are they willing to talk to you, you know, yeah. and then, and then that's a whole, a whole thing. But um, I'm really glad that social media existed when I was, you know, working on this book, because mm. um, um, I mean, I, I do think that it enabled me to, um, to get to, a, to tons and tons of people mm. that I might, that would have been a lot harder to get to and might've taken a lot more time. But, you know, on the other hand, I mean, it took me um, at least two years to, to get out, to, to finally be able to talk to Jennifer Rubin, mm. who's the actress who was Jimmy's girlfriend in 90 and 91 into, into the beginning of 92. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, it took me two years to find out her name. Yeah. Nobody, wow. nobody seemed to remember her name. I mean, yeah. Eric Jacob <laughs> couldn't remember it. You know, the co-manager, Mark Plummer, couldn't remember it. Uh, I mean, people who in the band couldn't, you know, uh, you know, couldn't remember it. I yeah. mean, and so, <laughs> so, you know, every person I talked to, I would say, hey, do you know who the actress was that Jimmy was Jimmy's girlfriend? And, you know, and, and so after two years, finally, I was able to get her name. And once I got her name, then I was, luckily, I was able to actually, you know, reach her. Yeah. And then we, and that was a really important interview for the book. I Absolutely. mean, really important. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so that was two years in the making to, for that to be able to happen. What a chunk of time of, uh, of know, all the research too. Yeah. Well, and I, and I was like, God, this is, I need to know this is, there's a, this is a part of his story. That's yeah. important. I need to actually, I need to know who it is and I need to talk to them if it's at all possible. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, like I say, it, it, it did happen, but so glad um, that worked out, Wow. you know, but um yeah. Not to know. mention natural roadblocks too along the way, people that don't want to speak or people couldn't get a hold of or couldn't find or yeah, I'm sure there were some of those, right? Some well, the only just per couldn't find at all. The only person, the only people that I wish I could have talked to for this book 
were, um, were you know, I mean, I, I had interviewed him, like I said, I had 10 hours of interview with Chris Isaac, mm-hmm. but I wanted to talk to him specifically after, you know, Jimmy died. Yeah. And, and he just, he wasn't going to do it. And um, so, you know, I wish yeah. that he had talked to me, but, um, you know, I was able to work around that without any, any problem really. And then I wish that Jimmy's ex-wife had been willing to talk to me, but um, that also, uh, because it's just because I was able to talk to so many people who were there mm-hmm. during all that period of time, then I could, you know, I could tell the story without talking to the, t- the two of them. But those were the only two that mm-hmm. I really wish they had. And I think it would have been, it would have been really good for Chris Isaac to have talked to me and, and to be able to hear in his own words, talking about how he felt, you know, in the wake of Jimmy dying. And, you know, I think that would have been, been a good thing. I mean, I have yeah. that, I have that in the book because, you know, um, one of his friends had talked to him about Jimmy and, and he was, was willing to share that with, with me on the mm-hmm. record for the book. Um, but I, I just think it would have been good for, for Chris to have, um, to have talked to me. And, and I also think it would have been good if, if uh, Winter Mullinder had Jimmy's ex-wife had, mm. had talked, but, um, but you know, so um, it goes, right? They, yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, I mean, maybe they yep. had just, you know, said enough at, at, at that point. Um, I saw that. Yeah. Chris Isaac did, you know, he, he said a few words on Facebook. It was in the book, right? He, he paid tribute. Yeah. yeah I mean, he did a post right after Jimmy died the day after mm-hmm. Jimmy died he did a, a really moving post and mm-hmm. I quote quoted that, you know, definitely quoted him in the book from, from that. Yeah. Um, you know, but um, well, whatever. It's, would have been, nice. <laughs> just, been nice. You know? <laughs> it's just how it, how it went and uh, it's okay. Yeah. You know? no, it, it, it came out fantastic. Anyway, you it really filled the gaps with everybody else's uh, input. So Cool. Yeah, you painted a, a great picture, and and like you said, a, a lot of people didn't pay tribute to him. Uh, no obituaries from what was it, the Chronicle yeah, that, and the Times, and yeah, like, I mean, made it I, happen. You know, I I don't really I don't get it. You know, I've never gotten an adequate. I've never really gotten an explanation. I mean, I was told that um, that just the timing of of Jimmy's death, that it was, you know, Christmas Eve day, um, you know, people were on vacation. It was this, that, and the other, that, mm. that it just sort of slipped through the cracks. Um, uh. you know, um, <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I, I think it's too bad, but it did mo the thing was <laughs> it, it's, I mean, it motivated me to, um, to contact, um, one of the editors that I was still in touch with at Rolling Stone. Mm. And, you know, I did, I did the the only substantial, you know, story about Jimmy after he died anywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, and I did that piece. And and that that was because if I had read a big obit in the Chronicle, then or then I probably wouldn't that I wouldn't have pursued that. Uh, Interesting. But, you know, <laughs> and then that. I also, I was going to, I was going to do something about Jimmy for this Australian magazine that I write for called Rhythms. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was going to do that anyway, but, yeah. um, but then I did, I did the, the Rolling Stone piece and, 
then then I did a much longer piece for rhythms. I did like an eight thousand word piece for them, mm -hmm. and um, and so then at that point, that's when I felt like um, there is so much more to this story. I, I really need to get to the bottom of of you know of, of a lot of different things in terms yeah. of Jimmy's life, and so that's when I decided. You know, that that led basically to me, you know, deciding to do the book. Um, so, you know, so in a weird way, um, because of him not getting that initial attention, there's now a book about it. Yeah. You know? Went from 8,000 words to you know. over 400 pages. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that you could bring together. Yeah. Well, thanks for this book. All right. This well, was great work. Thanks for doing this. <laughs>